listening to Rock Andor Roll, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm BJ, and on this episode, you're going to hear two different interviews I conducted. First, we're going to hear from Steve Butler, who is a member of the bands Quincy and Smash Palace. Quincy's self-titled album from 1980 is a definite power pop classic. Steve Butler has quite a story to tell, and you're definitely going to want to give this one a listen. And later in the episode, we will hear from Phil Solemn, who was the guitar player for Great Buildings, whose album, Apart From The Crowd, is one of my favorites. Phil later formed the Rembrandts with Great Buildings frontman Danny Wilde. Quincy were, it's a story of two brothers, two sets of brothers. Right. And we grew up in the same town together, had nights, New Jersey. At first we were uh, kind of uh, competing duos in high school. And then uh, after high school, we joined up together and we got a drummer. At the time we were doing music that was very British invasion influence stuff. A lot of Beatles and uh, Kinks in particular. And then we had our own songs that we wrote for when we would play clubs in the South Jersey and Philadelphia area. That's kind of, you know, what we did. We got what we thought was a big break in 1976 when uh, a, uh, a local Philadelphia manager wanted to manage the band. And we were like, wow, you know, getting a manager is a big, big step. And um, he sent us on a tour of the Midwest, Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Iowa, and they had ballrooms. And the ballrooms had been around since the 30s and 40s. Uh, a lot of big bands used to play there. And also a lot of bands like Cheap Trick and Aria Speedway and everything, they all got their start doing the ballroom circuit. So, you know, we thought it'd be pretty cool, and we all climbed into my brother's Volkswagen bus, and we went out and we played a whole bunch of shows and uh, it was pretty exciting. We got to see a lot of corn and a lot of wheat. <laughs> <laughs> we would we would pull into towns and think, there's nobody around here. Like, who the heck is going to come to this gig? And the places would uh, oftentimes fill up because there was nothing else to do. There was no MTV. There was nothing that really musically kind of connected the world together. So... When, uh, when bands would come out there to play, it was a big deal. So anyhow, we came back, and um, we were supposed to get paid when we got back, and our manager said, uh, oh, gee, guys, I'm really sorry. I had so many expenses involved with the tour that I can't pay you. And, you know, we had uh, quit our job, different jobs that we had and stuff like that to, uh, to go out and do it. And it was pretty bleak to say the least. So we booked a gig in Philadelphia at a kind of a legendary rock club in Philly called 
uh, J.C. Dobbs. It was on uh, August 13th, Friday night, full moon. It's kind of a odd day where all these weird things came together, and we were playing a show. We were doing like three sets, and uh, we were playing till two in the morning. And one of the band members, Alex, uh, is a rhythm guitar player. And, and also one of the singers. We had four singers in the band. He went home to get a to get his jacket because it was kind of a chilly, rainy night. And uh, on his little jaunt, which was about two blocks to his apartment, coming back, somebody stabbed him to death. Uh, randomly, we have no idea. Never, they never caught the guy. And they they murdered him at midnight, and they found the weapon and had all these satanic messages on the on a rag that was wrapped around the knife. It was horrible. And, uh, you know, he was my best friend and we were all best friends. And, you know, yeah, his, his own brother was in the band. So, um, we came to a point whether we decided whether we were going to keep soldiering on and uh, playing as a band. And it was kind of a weird thing because we couldn't really get work in Philly anymore. I don't know if it was just, the thing about the murder surrounding the band and all of that, but we could barely get a gig. And then we had read, I think, an article in Rolling Stone about CBGBs. We went up and we decided we were going to. We heard we heard that they were going to make a uh, an album, record a live album, and they were you know holding auditions. So we decided that you know we we're going to give it a shot, and we went up. It was on like a Monday night. Uh, we re- we recorded our our set, and uh, you know we thought we did well. Although there was probably about like ten people in the audience, it's probably one or two o'clock in the morning when we played. And uh, when we came back, we didn't hear anything, and we kept calling and calling for weeks. And nobody would pick up the phone at CBGB's because we wanted to find out if we made the audition. We were broke. We were all living in a band house together, you know, struggling to make ends meet. And I, I was in college at the time. And, uh, yeah, we were just, just trying to do whatever we could do to keep the band moving forward. But we weren't getting any feedback from the CBGB's thing, which we were hoping would be our big break. So we chipped in like $10 all of us, and we sent one of the band members on a bus to New York City. He got off the bus at Port Authority, which is like 40th and 9th, something like that. Mm-hmm. It was in the winter, and he walked all the way down the, to the Bower, Bleaker and Bowery, which is not a really nice place in uh, 1978, 77, 78, and, uh, and he walked down. which was a couple-mile hike. And he went into the club, and the sound guy was there, and he said, uh, hey, I'm from the band Quincy, and uh, you know we did an audition tape. And the, the sound guy was like, I don't know anything about you or, or the tape. You know, Get out of here. And he was kind of really abrupt and a grouch. And uh, Gerald, who was uh, a guy that went up, he's a bass player in the band, um, he got, he's like, man, you know, I spent like my last $10 to get here. Is there any way you could find out? And he's like, no, I don't know anything about it. Just get out of here. Beat it. So Gerald left and kind of dejected, and it was raining, and he's walking back to, to the bus station. 
Then he gets about two blocks into the walk and he hears somebody behind him going, hey, what do you say the name of your band was? And Gerald turns around and he goes, Quincy. And the guy says, come with me. Gerald walks back to CBGB's. They walk up a flight of stairs and they walk into the office of Hilly Crystal. And Hilly Crystal said, I didn't know how to get a hold of you guys. He didn't leave any information. And he goes, I love your tape. It's the best tape I have of all the bands that auditioned. And he goes, would you be interested in, in uh, me managing your band? And that changed. That that was it. That was the, the, the moment that everything changed. So it's a good thing Gerald went there because we never would have heard from him and that would have been, you know, right. the end of the story. Right. Yeah, so it was really crazy. So Hilly started booking his gigs. It was early on. I guess it was like like 78. Is who do you want to open for? We've got some bands coming in. We saw that XTC was coming to America for the first time. They're going to do three nights. And we go, we love this band. We want to open for them. And he goes, okay. So we opened for them on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. When we were playing, you'd look out in the audience and David Byrne was there and Debbie Harry and John Kale and, you know, like the cream of the crop of the New York new wave punk scene because uh, XTC was a, an extremely popular band in the New York scene. Was this at CBGB's? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. So it was the first time they came over. XTC still had their keyboard player at the time, Barry Andrews. And after we did our show, the two owners of Chrysalis Records and the head of the uh, United States and also their English uh, A&R department came backstage and said, we want to sign you guys to a record deal. I mean, that stuff just doesn't happen. You know, it's just, it was like something out of the movie Fame or something. We really wanted to sign with Chrysalis. I mean, really, we really, they were, uh, they were going to get us, by their standards, a really good deal. And, uh, but then it turned into like this giant bidding war. Where there was like six labels that wanted to sign the band. Columbia Records offered us the biggest deal they'd ever given a new band. And the guy who wanted to sign us was Paul Atkinson, a former guitarist for the Zombies. And we were huge Zombies fans. But there was a lot of going back and forth. Should we sign with Chrysalis or should we sign with Columbia? And uh, I think in the end, especially with the Zombies connection, we felt, you know, uh, Columbia's a huge label and uh, we signed with them. But the deal was when we signed with Columbia, they said... Uh, he can't have Hilly manage the band. And we said, what do you mean? He's our manager. He got us our deal. And he goes, yeah, but he's a club owner. He's not a manager. You need a serious manager. He's had to book tours and do deals and publishing deals. You know, all that kind of stuff that, you know, I don't think Hilly was really an expert at. It was really extremely tough to have to, uh, to do that. And then when we fired Hilly, he sued us, <laughs> which kept us, you know, which kept us in limbo for about, six to nine months until we, till Columbia worked out a thing where he would get paid. Were you kind of um, Hilly's first foray into managing or had, no, you, no, no. His, his first, his first foray were the dead boys. Okay. And, and which was a nightmare. Hilly's management of the dead boys. I mean, not only were the dead boys a nightmare, but so was Hilly's management. <laughs> and then he, and then he managed another band called the shirts and they were on Capitol records. And they didn't have success on either one of their two records. 
So that's why Columbia was really nervous about Hilly. They're going, you know, he's managed bands that had major label deals, and he didn't do a very good job of it. Mm-hmm. And then the guy that they wanted us to use was this guy, David Pasek, who at the time was managing Art Garfunkel, who had the number one song in America at the time. And they're going, no, this guy wants to manage you, and he's a real manager. You know, at the time, we're in our early 20s. We don't, we don't know anything about the music business. And we have, you know, a lawyer that's given us advice and a record label. And uh, I think we kind of um, allowed ourselves just to be guided. I mean, if I knew what I knew now, I would have made a lot of you know, different choices because I know a lot more about the business. recorded the record in 79 and it didn't come out till uh, 1980 and it's a shame because I think if we would have just signed with Chrysalis you know we would have had the record out in early 1978 uh, and I think by the time our record came out being tied up with so many issues we kind of uh, instead of being at the at the crest of the wave we were kind of behind the you know behind the wave and I, I think by that time there was even a little bit of a blowback against new wave bands. So the record came out and it was uh, it was doing well. On uh, they had like an alternative new wave chart, and the single from the record turned the other way around. It was like a top ten cut on on that chart, and we were touring with uh, we did a tour with the records, we did a tour with the yachts, we did a tour with. Vapors. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so it was cool. Um, yeah, both those bands are, were great. Great bands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they weren't, um, they weren't real pleasant to us. I think, um, like we, like we could never get a sound check when we opened, when we were opening for the records. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think they were just in a bad mood because their second record was out and it wasn't doing well. The records and, you said uh, you did it too. Yeah, records the records. Remember, yeah. Remember, yeah, remember that band, that yeah. Starry Eyes. Yeah, yeah. So that was on their first album. So when they came over to tour in 1980, it was for, for their second record. Crashes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and they were just. I, I just think they were depressed that the record wasn't doing well, and it was very difficult to have, a, you know, even a conversation with them. Uh, when we toured with the Yachts, they were really funny guys. They were hilarious. I'm still in touch with one of the guys from the band on Facebook. 
And um, the vapors were not the most uh, friendly guys either. They would, again, it's a thing a lot of times when you open for a band, they don't want you to sound good. You know, so a lot of times what they'll do is, you know, if if there's two hours allotted for sound check for both bands, the headliner will stay up there the whole time. And maybe they'll give you 15 minutes to get your, your gear up there. So you're kind of always, you know, walking in, walking onto a stage where you don't have a sound check. So it was kind of a a little bit of a a drag, but so anyhow, we were playing in LA. We just played a a gig at the whiskey and we were staying at the Marmont, uh, was it Chateau Marmont, the famous hotel there. And it was like, it was was kind of like rock and roll heaven, you know, (laughs) having a great time and you're on tour. And I got a call from my attorney. And he said, uh, we've been sued. I said, what? By who? And he said, Quincy Jones. And I said, who's Quincy Jones? I'd never heard of him. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a suburban kid, you know, yeah. 22 years old or whatever, you know, I, I don't know anything about Quincy Jones. He was a jazz guy that, that scored movies and stuff. Yeah, this is before Thriller and, every, and everything, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, so, because he said we were stealing his name. And he'd already he had already sued a band called Q and won. So He's, we had a band called out. Q. Q wow, exactly. That's nuts. Yes, a band called he Q. He could have found a band them. called Jones, I guess. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It, it was re- it was really uh, it was really kind of Well where where did you get the name from? What did who came up okay. with it or uh the bass player, Gerald, had written a song called Quincy Girl and it was a girl that he knew. Okay. And we were not Quincy's kind of a neat name. And yeah. I remember when we signed with Columbia, we were like, we're going to have to ditch this name, right? Because there's a TV show that was out called Quincy. And there's <laughs> right. a cartoon called Quincy. <laughs> yeah. And they went, they, and the legal department did a complete search on it and said, no, the name's, you're, you're totally cool to go. And because um, by that time, we'd had a pretty sizable following in New Jersey and in New York. So, like in 1978, I mean, Quincy and the B-52s were like the two, you know, two of the bands to see. And so we had, you know, we would pack audiences. And we didn't want to lose that. We didn't want to change the name of the band if we didn't have to. Right. Uh, the unfortunate aspect was is that Quincy Jones was also on CBS Records. And he was really good friends with the president, uh, Al Teller. So they caved. And they said, we had to finish out... <laughs> The rest of the tour saying, calling ourselves a band called Quincy. And they, and they did, did a cease and desist and pulled our records off the market. So it was really uh, a huge blow to the band. Yeah. So, uh, and they said, okay, well, let's do another record and you'll just have to, you know, go with a new name.
So we started recording a second record, but we kind of had a falling out with, uh, amongst ourselves with the direction of the band. So my brother, Brian and I, you know, we still wanted to stylistically do the same type of music we were doing. And, um, Gerald, who was the bass player and he also sang, he wanted to take it more into like a, a white funk kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, I don't know anything about white funk. I was just like, uh, you know, I'm lost. I'm lost in the genre of music. And we just kind of got into this weird thing where the producers wanted to go that way. And so our, our personal relationships fell apart. And Brian and I, my brother, midway through the record went, you know, I'd rather drive a truck than do this. So we quit. We quit the band. There was a, eventually a second record that came out, but the name of the band was Lulu Temple, and the music that came out was an EP because the stuff like Brian and I did wasn't really on it. So it and it didn't do well. There was no touring. There was really nothing really much happened. And, and then, like about a year later, after after that folded, Brian and I started a new band called Smash Palace, and we signed a deal with Epic, and Smash Palace is still together. And initially, we were more of a punk band. We signed with Columbia, the producer we got. They kind of smoothed out all the edges. We did not like the record. Really? We were not happy with the production of it. No, not at all. We thought it was way too smooth. Mm-hmm. It didn't sound like it. It is very slick. And, you know, it's very new yeah. wavy with the, with the keyboard sound. But it's... Yep. But, I mean, I think Turn the Other Way Around is pretty much as good as it gets in terms of a power pop song. Yeah, same here. I, I thought the songs on it were really, really strong. You know, I don't think there's a dot on the record, but I just, we thought that it just watered down the sound of the band. Like, if you listen to Quincy the Band on that record and those things from CBGBs, that's what we sounded like. Right. It was a much more rough, raw sound. God, privilege, few. 
disappointed that we didn't we didn't have that uh that edge but that was really you know that's what happens again you know when you're you know we never made a record before we made a single for cb we put out a cbgb single in 1979 which was us playing live and it sounded just like us and we were happy with that but um you know when you're when you're in the studio and you're listening to music and you're working seven days a week 12 12 hours a day and the producers playing it through these big speakers really ungodly volume it always sounds great <laughs> you know it's, yeah you get it home and you're like yikes this sounds a lot more smoothed out it probably comes down to the mix more than anything right yes yeah absolutely it's it's a and, and it was kind of guitar and bass light right and uh the drums didn't sound very aggressive a song like can't live in a dream is basically a punk song but it's not produced that way. Yes. So, exactly. Yeah. You're exactly right. Now, if you listen to like listen to "Can't Live in a Dream" live, it sounds like a punk song. Yeah. I can't hold back those tears anymore, baby. I made three major label records and I didn't like the production on any of them. And it wasn't really till I started producing myself or co-producing myself, because sometimes I'll work with, with another producer just to get a good outside ear. You know, I make records now that I like and, and they sound like what I want them to sound like, but you know, they major labels didn't trust bands to do that. Uh, and, we, and to tell you the truth, we didn't know how to do it anyhow. We just didn't have the right producer. So, yeah, and also yeah, a uh, band that starts in the 70s and then ends up recording records in the 80s, now you're like in a different <laughs> in a different world in yeah. the 80s from the 70s. Yeah, and even when you think about it too, like records started getting to sound a lot more slick. Yeah. 
So if you listen to Elvis Costello, my aim is true. And then you go up to Armed Forces or Blood and Chocolate and all those records, they're very slickly produced. You know, all of the, the punk stuff is gone. Same with the police. By the time you get to Synchronicity, that doesn't sound anything like the first record at all. That's kind of just what happened with the music thing. You know, all the, the punk thing kind of died. I shouldn't say it died out. It never has. It's still there. There's still punk bands out there. Just like there's still power pop bands out there. You know, when, when, when you're talking about record companies, they want to make a lot of money. That's really all they're interested in yeah. <laughs> when it comes down to it. You know, e even the people like Paul Atkinson was a great A&R guy. And, he, you know, he fought for the band. And, uh, he he got what we were about. But, you know, when the pressure comes from down on high to sell records and make records that sound like records that are making money, you know, you kind of lose, you, you lose your control. And a lot of times they, they don't they don't want your opinion. Yeah. When when we were mixing with the first Smash Palace record at the record plant, the guy who was mixing it, because Brian and I were going back and forth with this guy, saying we don't like the way the drum sound, we don't want this big '80s drum sound, and he was you know incessant about it. And after we left the first day, our record label called us the next day and said you're not allowed back. <laughs> he's mixing the yeah, he's mixing the record and you have no input. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know that's that's the kind of shit that goes on, and I'm sure it goes on in any big industry like Hollywood or anything else. Even though our manager for Quincy was kind of effective, he was also a bit of a pushover. Whereas I think a lot of times, if you have a manager who's insistent on things and a band that's insistent on things, and a lot of times you got to be able to. Just tell somebody to go stick it and walk away, which oftentimes is kind of hard to do. But I mean, when Brian and I left Quincy, I, I had no regrets. I was just like, I don't want to do this. Well, do you think so, that if, if you had signed with Chrysalis and they had actually fought back that, because I don't see how Quincy Jones actually had a case if it had gone like to court. Yeah, I think if, I think it would, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um, but I think if we would have signed with Chrysalis, we would have had a better situation. And we, the thing about the Chrysalis thing is that we had support that was really deep. It wasn't one guy who wanted to sign the band. It was literally the four heads of the label that came in and you know, you know, unilaterally came in together and you know, one by one stepped up and said, we're going to sign the band. And, uh, I think it could have been a whole different career. So, who knows, you know, yeah. it's time.
so I've uh, I've I've had uh, subscriptions to these different newspaper databases and stuff, and I've never been able to find any newspaper stories about what happened to Alex or anything. It's such an insane there, story. Yeah, I, I think the police did a terrible job. Yeah. Um, it was like a cold case. I don't. I don't remember the side truth. I don't remember seeing it in the paper either. That's crazy. Yeah. You said there were satanic messages, or something. Yes. Yeah. So that's. Well, there was like a cloth that was wrapped around the knife. So you stabbed in the chest once. Uh. We found the murder weapon, and they found this cloth. But it was a Friday the 13th at midnight and a full moon. Oh, so the, they, they thought it might have been some kind of satanic ritual or something, uh, initiation into a club or something. The man, all I can tell you is that Alex was, he, he was like the nicest guy I ever knew. I'm in, and I, and I, I, do, I do not exaggerate. Yeah. And we were best friends. We, we hung out together like for years, all through high school, best friends. He wouldn't harm a fly. Yeah. And he was extremely talented. So, you know, it was just a... And Quincy was one of those bands that had some of the lowest lows and some of the highest highs. You know, right. it was just all over the place. And it all went down in, within a five-year period. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, it's like when you see just the basic story that's on Wikipedia or whatever, it just seems like he got mugged. But now that you say this, it seems like it was something other than that, which makes it even more disturbing and messed up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah nobody ever um, did a cold case on it or anything, you know, like to see if they could solve the story. Nothing. Yeah, when it's just something completely random like that, those are the hardest ones yeah. to solve. Yeah. Yeah. So you like had another set to play, and you were just waiting for him to get back. Yeah, was it that kind of situation? Yeah, yeah, and we were kind of like, "Where the heck is Alex?" You know, he knows we got. Why is he late? And uh, a guy burst into the club saying, "Call an ambulance! Somebody's been stabbed out front." And we knew. Yeah, we knew that. And Gerald went out front and held his brother in his arms as he died. Jesus. It was just, yeah, it was just, it was just torture. And we, we were really debating whether we were even going to continue playing music. Yeah, I was going to say it's amazing that you even continued on after that. Yeah. But it was that thing, too. It, it wasn't just any kind of a band. It was, you know, like I said, we were really close. Yeah. Really close friends. It wasn't like, you know, five guys get together, don't know each other very well, and start a band. Um, so it was all we knew how to do. Well, and then being in the middle of the CBGB's thing, that, I mean, that's so much history. So iconic, so legendary, you know? Oh, yeah. And, I, I, and even the story about, about Gerald going up on the bus by himself and finally getting to meet Hilly. I mean, that was, you know, it's such a crazy story. Yeah. So. And then you said Hilly sued you? 
Mm, yeah, well, we fired him. Yeah. He sued us. And Columbia said, you know, okay, we'll give you some cash and we'll give you some points when on the first two records. So he was he was getting uh, something back for his time. It wasn't he wasn't left in the lurch. Right. And it was funny because I went I went back to CBGB's a couple years later and played there with Smash Palace and there were no hard feelings. Yeah, he knew how the yeah, business worked. <laughs> he must have learned the yeah, hard way yeah, how exactly. the business worked. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you said Good. you didn't like the record when it came out, but do you look back? Do you listen to it now and 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 like it and, and realize that you know like uh, given the the context of when it came out and everything that it's a really good album. Yeah, yeah. I, I look at it much more favorably now than I did then. And yeah. the other thing is too is when I hear it, um, like you know, I listen to it when they first put it up on like Google Play and stuff like that, and I listened to it and I went. Wow, this sounds a lot better than I remembered. <laughs> because, yeah, you know, I I had the vinyl, and I I never owned a good record turntable in my life. You know, it's it's, it's funny because you know people go on about that vinyl, 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 without um, without thinking that vinyl sounds amazing with a great turntable, yeah. brand new needle, amplifier, speakers. Yes, but most people, ninety percent of the people I knew did not have great record players. Right. So records, you know, when I put on the Quincy record, it just kind of sounded small and thin. And, uh, but when I listened to the master, now when they, when they put it out on these streaming services, I'm like, man, this sounds, this sounds really good. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
I first moved out to L.A. back in 76, the first people I got involved with were uh, the guys in Quiet Riot. Really? And we all, yeah, we did all sorts of things together. You know, we just bonded. Where I came from, I was in a, a glam rock band called Android. <laughs> awesome. And, uh, you know, I wore, the, the band that I was in, we all wore basically girls' clothes. We all <laughs> yeah. had hair, shag haircuts, wild-ass looking stuff, a certain amount of makeup. You know, we rocked hard, we had marshals, you know, all that stuff.
so when I got out to L.A. and uh, I met uh, Randy Rhodes through his brother who came and tried out for for the band that I'd been trying to put together. And, you know, he he, he really wasn't able to, to be in the band, but he uh, we became friends. And, you know, I went up to his house and met Randy, and then we became friends. And then Randy and I realized we got more in common than all the other stuff that was going on in our lives. So we, we hung out a lot, which was very weird because to end up in great buildings was quite a stretch there because they, that, that whole thing was pretty much anti what all the, you know, stuff like Quiet Riot was putting out. And, you know, the, the Quiet Riot thing was for the band I had and the rest of the guys in that band, they considered Quiet Riot like, you know, we had to compete with them. And I thought, like, no, let's not compete. We're on the same team. You know, Randy got us into uh, into the same management company and everything. So I, I thought, well, you know, like brothers. But there was this competitive thing between the other guys in my band and Quiet Riot. And we had a team of people on the management side that were always trying to uh, kind of sculpt our image and at one point, it got very weird because they decided, no, this new wave stuff is coming around. You guys need to change your image because we've already got Quiet Riot. They're, they're not going to be able to change their image. And we've got this band called Angel, which had was a super glam rock. Yeah. Big type band. And, you know, we all hung with these guys. And, you know, it was like a bunch of girly sort of men around Hollywood that everyone knew and suddenly our age uh, our uh, management was trying to <laughs> you know they, they brought us to salons they took us shopping they had a, a team of people that would do this and suddenly we were like made into this kind of fake version of what their idea of new wave was and we had to change our name at, at the time I think uh, we used to be called Cupid <laughs> which, it was a little bit of a wacky, wanky sort of a name, but our uh, our drummer came up with that one and said, "No, that's what we are. We're we're, we're doing rock and roll love songs. We're Cupid. <laughs> we looked like Cupid. It was, you know, looking back on that, I don't think I even have any photographic evidence of it, but it was a it was a little bit silly. And then they they're like, you have to come up with another name. And then the drummer, uh, he decided we should be called Loose Change which I never liked because I thought it sounded like, you know, what, we like fucking pennies or something? Is that all the value we have? <laughs> but, you know, our manager, he, he thought we should be called the American Playboys. <laughs> I don't like that either. No. For a while, we'll see what happens. Android was a great name. Yeah, Android, like, hit the nail on the head. We did uh, lots of Bowie and Lou Reed. And yeah. We did all the outside kind of stuff. Alex Harvey band. In the beginning, Bombo Rune.
Are there any recordings of Android or Cupid or any of that stuff? Uh, there probably are, and I don't know that I am in possession of them. Right. <laughs> uh, somewhere I've, I've had somebody send me, uh, you know, some bar gig of Android. So I, I know I have it, you know, in some hard drive somewhere. Where was that? Where were you? Where were you from originally? That was. Up, uh, I was from Duluth, Minnesota. Okay. Okay. And the the guys in Android were from Superior, Wisconsin, which is right across the bridge, you know, the border there. Consequently, we did a lot of... Uh, Superior, Wisconsin is infamous for having a bar on every corner. Right. Of, you know, they're limited... Uh, it wasn't a, a very big city, but what there was of it, it was a drinking town. So there was a lot of uh, bars with stages and... We played them all. So you're talking about the time period that Cheap Trick were playing all the clubs, right? Yeah, that's, in fact, it's very weird uh, how that ended up because I saw them up in Minnesota, maybe it was in Wisconsin, somewhere, very early on, probably 1975. What, what do you think of the term power pop? Was that a sound that you pursued or... or because I know you played a lot with like the Plimsolls and 2020, and I mean those are classic power pop bands, right you there. You know what's funny about all that is that back in the day, when we were all, you know, we'd see each other on a regular basis. We all had the same gigs. You know, sometimes we were on the same bill. Sometimes we'd go to each other's gigs. All that stuff. But I don't think I ever really heard anyone talking about power pop back then. Yeah, I I really uh, you know by looking at that through uh, today's eyeballs and ears, you don't really look through your ears. People say that you can, but (laughs) don't look. Anyway, uh, it's weird in retrospect because that would have been a term that I think more people uh, than not would have embraced, rather than what was kind of superimposed on us guys of that uh, ilk, which was new wave. And yeah. I don't think any of us uh, wanted to be new wave. It was like, what was that? Right. You know, it didn't really, it was like rock music, but we did have a, a more pop sensibility. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, even the word pop always bothered me because what is it? It's like, what's popular? Yeah. And uh, popular is only it's got like a shelf life and then it moves in something else is popular and then you can't really com- compare the, the things as they you know come and go but apparently it all fits into some kind of category I guess that's that's where 
or lose interest in uh, categorizing things. But yeah. Power Pop is, is, to me, it sounds like a, you know, accurate term. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's a very identifiable sound, especially in that time period of the, for like maybe 79 to 83 or something. There were just so many bands that kind of had a similar style and sound and look even too. So it it kind of all went together. There was obviously a movement or, you know, so there was something happening that there were so many bands like that in that same time period. Yeah, um, I, I consider the examples you've given so far and when I think of other bands in that uh, same, you know, what, all, what we were all kind of trying to do, I think we were sort of hearkening back to the early 60s, really. Right. That's where our influences came from. And, you know, through the 70s, everything changed. You know, it was just like the whole hippie thing kind of came in and changed image for everyone. And, and we all went through, uh, you know, certain, you know, just kind of metamorphoses over the years. But then when that movement, specifically from 79 through, and I, I just uh, lived out in LA up until 1982, and then I moved up to Minneapolis. But uh, so I, I missed out on the last maybe year of what was going on. But also I noticed that it seemed like that's when the kind of hair metal bands were starting to form around Hollywood. And it's like, oh, this scene's not happening for me. Yeah, there was definitely a throwback to the 60s, but at the same time, all of the inf- you couldn't avoid all the influences of the 70s. And, you know, punk rock had come. And so there was it was infused with, still infused with those influences as well. So, yeah, there was a lot more, well, production. Yeah. Uh, the way you'd uh, approach a song, you know, everything, there had been enough time that, the the uh, sonic value of things was being, you know, you could uh, you could get sounds so much better during that period, and you know there was more power to it. You know, I guess it was like taking early '60s music sensibilities and just really kicking ass on it. Yeah, like Super Beatles or something. So when you joined the band, so you had the two guys who had come out of the Quick who, I mean, I have that record, and it's basically just almost a carbon copy of Sparks, really. But they they did, like, before the quick ended, they did that song Pretty Please Me, which is really a classic kind of early power pop, almost punk song. So you can see that going in that direction before Great Buildings, right? Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, those guys and myself were on the same page with that uh, musical, you know, kind of fence around us. We all dug on the, the punk stuff, but we we're all much more um, diverse musicians than what you'd find in, in punk bands. Right. So we, you know, we kind of floated on this. We had a certain energy and we were much more musical it was kind of like fusing uh, Queen with, you know, because we had that sort of sensibility in a way. We, we like really big, grandiose production 
kind of thing. But we also just like to rock out and, you know, balls to the wall with, you know, some kind of uh, frills, I guess. Yeah. So how did you end up linking up with those guys and, and forming the band? Well, they had just left the quick, Ian and Danny. And, uh, you know, we all knew each other from parties and gigs. And, uh, but we weren't close. You know, I, I probably knew Ian better than I knew Danny. But it, it seemed like we were always in the same places, mingling and had a lot of the same friends. And uh, I was in a band at the time called Loose Change. And we were playing all over. And meanwhile, it turns out that Ian and Danny were coming to Loose Change gigs and checking me out because they had the, you know, in their mind they were going to make this band after they split out of the quick. So I'd see them in the audience and be like, this kind of seems suspicious. And, uh, at some point, we had a loose change gig, and the, the other guys uh, weren't there, but there was an incident that went down where I had my mom and my girlfriend and my brother in the audience, and after the show, after our set, they tried to get backstage, and I walked by the door where they were trying to get in, and the, uh, the bouncer wouldn't let them in, and I said, hey, that's my family, you know, they should be on the guest list, and he goes, they're not on. And I said, well, here, let me put them on. And I grabbed the pencil and started writing her name. And the guy punched the pencil out of my hand. And we ended up getting in this giant fist fight. And he uh, knocked me across the room and through this, these swinging doors. It was just a very dramatic scene. And my brother, <laughs> who is a uh, karate expert, attacked the guy, took him down. And then the guys in my the band that I was in saw this going on and they came in and it was just like a you know a bar fight sort of a thing and at the end of the day somehow the you know my bandmates blamed me for the whole thing and thought that I was you know a bad influence and how dare I you know do such a thing and it's like I was just trying to get my my family in the backstage you know it's, it's really stupid and it came off like that. Well, these guys, the next day we had a meeting in our rehearsal place. We sat in a circle and they just lambasted me. And I thought, you know, how is this even possible? How can you not see my, my point of view here? If it was any of them, I would have stood up for them. Well, that wasn't the case. Then suddenly in the other room, the phone is ringing. And I said, hang on, I'm, I'm out of here. And I walked in, picked up the the phone on the wall and uh, it was Ian Ainsworth and he says how'd you like to join our new band Great Buildings <laughs> and I said I am in <laughs> yeah good timing yeah it just uh, blew my mind so we were definitely being uh, observed by the uh, powers that be so you had <laughs> you you had a bar fight and you were thrown through like those swinging swinging doors like straight out of a western film. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Except it was the uh, kitchen doors in the back. Oh right. Behind. <laughs> but it was those exact same kind of doors which I've always fantasized, you know. Yeah. Having a, a big fight like that and being thrown through. I mean, here it actually happened right in front of everybody and uh, <laughs> yeah, like what a great 
metaphor yeah. for um, like, well, that finally happened, and now I'm in great buildings. <laughs> yeah. So they already had the name. Yeah, they had just come up with the name. I think they had another guitarist that they were experimenting with, and uh, he was not, you know, clicking with them. And they had like five or six tunes. They gave me a cassette, and I thought, this is exactly where I'm at. I would have written these songs myself if I had like-minded guys I was playing with. And uh, we just mind-melded. And they followed me around after that for about a month. I still had some gigs, you know, that I had to uh, commit to actually playing. So guys, they, they would come to all the gigs. And there was one we played in a, a theater in San Diego. And uh, Danny and Ian sat in the front row. And I remember at some point I was uh, playing a guitar solo. So I'm up against the edge of the stage and Danny's smoking a cigarette and he goes, he flicks it and it goes, went through the air, you know, like in slow motion and it just, he says it landed in my mouth, but I remember it landed on the top of my guitar and I picked it up and put it in my mouth. But one of those stories between those two, either one of them is is kind of like, all right, this is a sign. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) After that, it was, it was very obvious. I was, uh, we're going to get out of there. You know, we spent about three plus years, I, I think is what the what we put into that. We did two records. The second one wasn't released until probably 10 years ago. Yeah, I have the CD, Extra Epic Everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the uh, sort of belated title that it was given. Ian came up with that title and I thought pretty much knocked it out of the park. Well, my my copy of Apart from the Crowd doesn't have an album title on it. It like it's as if it's a self-titled album, but then I've seen copies of the record that have like a sticker put on there. So Well, I don't recall that it had not been titled. Maybe that was like a pre-release copy or something. Yeah. The only copy I've got is Oh my god. The copy I have has a sticker on it. Right. Yeah, mine like mine oh. on this on the spine it doesn't even say apart from the crowd, you know? As if I don't know if they made a mistake when they put it out or Wow. Yeah, and I've seen it's like a clear sticker, right? That they just yeah, put over. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't say apart from the crowd, I'll be damned. You know what? That's the first time I've ever noticed that. Oh, in this, all right, on the back it says, for promotion only, ownership reserved by CBS, sale is unlawful. Okay, yeah, these must have been uh, pre-release yeah, copies. It, it does say it on the record. It, it has the title on the record. Oh, let me look at that. Make sure I've got the, the correct thing here. Oh, yeah. It's got, it's got two sides. Gotta love it. Um, were you guys happy with how the record turned out at the time? Uh, I don't think we were sad about it. Yeah. You know, in retrospect, it's funny because, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time on that and we went through two producers making it. 
And, you know, you, you notice things over the years that are like, oh, boy, I wish you would have sang that part in pitch. <laughs> that stuff, you know, that nowadays you can just fix that in the studio. But uh, Was it, were you working with Earl Mankey at first? I'm sorry? Were you working with Earl Mankey at first? Or uh, No, I wasn't involved with oh, these okay. recordings. But, you know, I think he may have produced the demos that... Uh, that Danny and Ian had done, you know, that they enticed me into the band with. Mm -hmm. It's possible he recorded us uh, for some demos. We did some versions, I remember, early on that I thought sounded spectacular, and it seems to me that might have been Earl's place. He was great. He's got some amazing records he produced from this era, like 2020 and the pop and... Uh, mm -hmm. um, three o'clock he I, I mean he i love the work he did on on these with these bands and i thought i saw his name connected to you guys somewhere and that would have been a great pairing but um but i think the record turned out great i love the production on it i mean this this record is one of my favorites of the whole era and genre i just think it's a wow, great nice. record yeah thank you very much the song and the light goes on is one of my absolute favorites. That song is amazing, and I love your guitar lick in that. Octaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so great. That song is amazing. Well, thank you. I, I always got a kick out of that one too. That was fun. Always fun to do live.
yeah, it's really original. You know, it's really in, an inspired arrangement and everything. It's not, it doesn't really sound like anything else. It totally fits in the power pop genre, but it's a it's an original take on it. It's it's really great. I mean, it's it's weird how you know all these genres blend together. I mean, it would be easy to call Great Buildings a new wave album if you look at what was coming out at the time. I know Hold On to Something was that. Did that song chart? Was it kind of a hit, or? Yeah, it was probably the only song, to my recollection, that had some kind of charting action. I have no idea what the chart position was or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't really, not so much into that. Uh, you know, deep of a look. It's kind of you know. I don't want to know. What if it's not number one? I don't want to know. And of course, it never was. But you know, it was played all over the place, and we uh, we did some touring, and uh, you know, got a load of that. So when you joined the band, they had they had a certain amount of songs, but then you all worked together. Like, how many of the songs that are on the record did they already have when you joined? Uh, I had to look at the record to see even what's on it. They had. Combat Zone, that was a big seller for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Combat Zone, yeah, they had written that one. They wrote Maybe It's You. Another Day in My Life, it seems to me, was uh, on the original demo they showed me. That's a great song. Yeah, if you look at the picture, you guys on the back, you have that, <laughs> you have the look, uh, the power pop look for sure. Was that just <laughs> was that just like how you how you dressed, or did you 
Was it like a cultivated image, or was it not as thought out? Uh, well, it was sort of thought out. That that cover, the back cover stuff, was Ian's idea. He was very uh, specific about conveying a, an image. Yeah. But yeah, that particular shot. It's funny. I remember I had uh, a bit longer hair at that time, and one of the art director people said, well, here, you know, we've got somebody who can just give you a little trim here. They took off a bunch of my hair and I was like, okay, now I feel like a naked puppy. But in retrospect, it's fine. Did, did you guys tour much after the record came out? We did a lot of uh, California, you know, Southwest sort of stuff. And then at some point we uh, went across the country God, who all were we with? I know we, we spent a lot of time uh, on the road with Tommy Two-Tone at the time. <laughs> right. Which is funny because that band and my old band, you know, the one that I had left, we did uh, some bills with Tommy as well. And so, you know, we'd already kind of bonded. And here suddenly I was in great buildings and, uh, yeah, going all over the... You know, I think as far as we got it was probably Canada. I, I I didn't ask you how you how you actually got signed, how you got your record deal. Oh, we did a uh, at least one showcase because we had this manager David Harper who managed uh, uh, Robert Palmer. He was very influential, and he set up this showcase, and all these labels came. I think we did it at uh, a Troubadour. And so that was kind of our, uh, and also, you know, we, we'd been getting around, getting reviews, and there was some interest. I think we were considered pretty unique, and we were just hard-hitting. So uh, the word came out, and I don't know what, uh, what made Columbia be the, you know, the final choice, but it seemed like, you know, they, they had all the bells and whistles we were looking for big powerful company and all that what happened with the second album then well the, that was uh we were in the process of working on that and then everything started kind of going to pieces i had a you know personal life situation that came up where i, I basically had to make a decision am i going to stay out here or move away the way things were going it, it uh it was a heavy time, and I, I just said, "I can't, I can't keep going." You guys, uh, looks like I'm out. And so, the album basically, you know, we'd recorded basic tracks live. In fact, geez, the whole that whole second record, as it has been released, was it's essentially a live album in the studio, just us doing the songs. There's no overdubs, you know all the vocals are live. It was just like, that, okay, that's our, we're going to get everything down and then we'll go back in and start fixing things or adding, doubling guitars and adding extra vocal pads, throwing in some keyboards, that sort of thing. But we never got that far. And so those tapes just sat for years. You know, regrettably, I had to be the, the guy who ended the band
yourself So much in your mind you find it hard to think Just to make some sense you would do one more drink And the people all around you If they saw the world inside you Would they embrace you or laugh ha! Or simply turn away Walking through the twilight With someone you don't know Have you hit the final show And wonder till you run down With no one left to go Have you hit the final show So Columbia would have put out a second album, it's just that you broke, you didn't get dropped, you broke up? Yeah, in fact we had to uh, basically go to our lawyer and disband legally for it to even be, you know, a possibility that, and I thought the other guys would just move on, get somebody to replace me, uh, but then as we were in the lawyer's office, well then Ian said, well, you know what, I'm kind of out too, because we started getting to, to uh, we were going through this period where each of us, or at least the three of us who were songwriters, were starting to look inward at what we were capable of doing as songwriters and performers even. It just felt like we were we were kind of moving apart and just learning about our own personal musical styles. And uh, it was funny, whenever we'd present song ideas, it was like, okay, is this one gonna stick? It just felt like we were going three different directions at that point in time. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of chomping at the bit to uh, each get our 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 personal style into the next record. We were rubbing each other the wrong way, so it just it, it was time. I guess Danny tried to reform it to a certain extent, but that didn't turn into anything other than you know he he basically went solo from that. Right. So. Uh, it was a little magical period we had going on there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least we got this album out of it because it's a classic.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 